This is the Luminate Collective podcast brought to you by AAB Consulting and I'm your host, Shan Parker. Today's guest, Josiah Lockhart, is the Chief Executive of Changeworks, Scotland's leading environmental charity delivering energy efficiency and low carbon solutions. Josiah is leading on the delivery of Changeworks' strategy for 2022 to 2025 as the organisation refocuses its work towards one goal decarbonising Scotland's homes. In this conversation, we chat about Josiah's bookmark moment, where his early career aspirations in the entertainment industry took an unexpected turn, leading him down a path of self-discovery and social entrepreneurship. He shares candid insights into a hugely pivotal moment where he experienced a life-altering bicycle accident and how that recovery shaped a new perspective on life, career and the urgency of societal issues. Josiah's experience advising and leading social enterprises and working with social entrepreneurs is second to none. To hear the lessons Josiah has learned the hard way and the advice he would give to a new social enterprise wanting to make an impact keep listening Josiah thank you so much for sitting down with us today for a wee chat um I think when we spoke before today it was maybe about four or five weeks yeah. ago something like that um and I saw your name and I saw what you did but I didn't know what to expect at all um and I think maybe a lot of people listening might also have a similar feeling um so I want to know as much about you as we can squeeze into the next 45 minutes um we want to sort of start to prompt you to think about your bookmark moment. So a time in your life where perhaps you had choices, whatever you ended up doing has led you to where you are now and what you're doing today. Um, but if anything springs to mind, talk us through, mm. I know it's hard to pick one, right? We've all got loads, but one that really sort of stands out to you as a time of change. I think there's probably two if I okay. can break if yeah. I can break the, the format. Um so one was a kind of a kind of career defining moment where um you know I had had my you know my life and everything was progressing towards a particular career, which I went to university for, went and did, and then nine months into it, very obviously that wasn't the right thing. So kind of, you know, had kind of broken what I thought and kind of where I thought everything was going. Um, and that was that huge career change. But then another one was kind of in 2016, where I had been getting in a rhythm of where I was going and my life was moving forward, but then had a major bicycle accident, which mm. I think I told you about, which um, uh, quite a long recovery, kind of six, nine month recovery for it. And that kind of changed my kind of ambition and pace, I think. Um, and really those two things are kind of, are two kind of bookmark moments in my kind of life and career that kind of have helped guide me to, I guess, where I'm, where I'm at now. Yeah. God. Um, obviously there's two really important bits in there, but I suppose if we maybe go right back to the start, mm. what was young Josiah like? What was, what was your life like growing up? You obviously have an accent, so, yeah. you know, we know you're not born and bred here in Scotland. Um, tell us about all of that. Um, so I had a quite in interesting childhood. It's, uh, it's kind of an interesting way to describe it. So I was very unsettled, probably is the best way to describe it. I was born in California, Santa Ana, California, um, Orange County, outside of Los Angeles. Yeah. For people who don't know the geography. Um, but moved when I was two. Um, and then kind of had this progression through my entire childhood up to almost when I left home of moving every three or four years um, as family. So kind of my parents were kind of very working class. My dad worked in the trades. His, you know, he came from a family with all the brothers, ran a trades company together, um, mother secretary, and kind of moved for work constantly. I often get asked, why did you move around a lot? It's, yeah. it's not really a reason, just different jobs and things going up. Um, so I think that kind of, that movement really kind of defined my, um, just kind of how I how I changed and kind of adapted. Kind of always was kind of never settled, but that was kind of fine. If people ask me where are you from, I don't really have an answer a lot of times um, because it was kind of all over. Um, and so that could have been, you know, in different parts of the states or, or or moving around other places. And that kind of progressed until kind of towards the end of that, we ended up around Washington, D.C. Nice. in the States, kind of just outside of that, um, where I went to school for the kind of final four years. That's kind of the bit that I remember, really, of, of, of traveling. Um, but that was kind of, I guess, a way of, uh, the, the kind of, uh, yeah, I would kind of say the defining bit of that was the kind of unsettledness and always moving and mm. not really having 
kind of a fixed place mm. of being. And what sort of age were you when you were in Washington, D.C.? What was those four years? It was kind of like the last four, four or five years. I don't remember how many it was, but it was it was high school. School. School yeah. time um, mm-hmm. before I left, um, really, to kind of go out on my own and figure out what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, kind of for most young people, that's quite a defining moment of what you're doing. Um, and I went to an interesting school. I might, most of my parents worked uh, in proximity to school, so I ended there, but it was one of those schools that often, um, for other, for most of the students there, it was their kind of last chance. They've been kicked out of state school so many times, they end up having, you know, a one last chance. It was quite an, it, it quite an, a creative environment um, where you learn a lot that you don't realize until you look back on it. Yeah, interesting. So you finished there, mm-hmm. and then you mentioned that you had gone to do further study and then actually decided that it wasn't yeah. for you. So what was what was going on yeah, there? Yeah, so um, probably influence of in that kind of time, I, I really got to know who was the head teacher, the principal of the school I was at, who worked in, kind of had a side hustle doing recording, music recording industry stuff. Um, and I got to know him really well, and I ended up, uh, like, there's weird stories of, you know, us working late in the studio one night and him letting me come into school late the next morning um, and kind of really, really wanted to pursue a career in the entertainment industry, um, which is kind of where I'm at now. It seems like a whole yeah. a whole different world. <laughs> um, so ended up pursuing that. So went and kind of got a degree in... Um, recording arts, entertainment business, um, and with kind of connections of having done before, got a job in uh, outside Los Angeles quite quickly. Um, So back to where? Back to, yeah, different, uh, yeah, slightly different where I was at before, Mm -hmm. but kind of moved back there and, you know, spent nine months um, really getting to know it and stuff and really uh, kind of the ethics of, if that's a fair way of saying it, the ethics of that industry really broke me. Like, Mm. I think I didn't appreciate how difficult um, it is to be in that industry, particularly in that that part of the industry, and in that where I ended up. Um, and then, kind of, after nine months, I remember having this conversation with my parents, and kind of just saying, I just kind of can't be in this environment anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and picked up and drove. I think at that time they were they were living in Florida on the other side of the country, and got up and kind of overnight drove all the way across the United States to wow. kind of get back to where they were, and kind of spent these couple years kind of really not sure. Um, even kind of my worldview at the time, kind of that, kind yeah. of what I was thinking and doing, kind of yeah. really broke. Within the nine months that you were working, mm-hmm. it's interesting because you kind of you got to the end of your study mm-hmm. and then you went into the world of work and then it was whilst you were doing that, you yeah. thought, actually, it's not for me. For somebody who's totally ignorant to that yeah. industry like me, what, what was it about it that didn't click? What did you not enjoy about mm-hmm. it that made you think, oh, you know what, I don't want to don't do this? I think it's, well, so there's things around kind of pace um, is there because you're always looking for the next thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, n- nothing has long term to it. Nothing, even relationships, you know, you're there like, you know, you, you make a friend with someone to find out who their friends are to kind of get you a next thing. And there's kind of that um, genuous, genuineness of pace that, um, that isn't that isn't there um, and kind of really trying to. Um, get to know people as people. It's really hard to do in, in parts of that industry. And you grow. I mean, I was quite young, but was very, um, for my age, in, in roles I probably shouldn't have had, like okay. kind of higher up, you know, managing people who were 20, 30 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And those roles, and I think I was thrown into the deep end at probably an age where um, I needed a lot more under my belt before I could have probably handled um, that bit of, the, of yeah. that, that career. But... Um, but I think, you know, looking back on it, it was a really interesting lesson. I think particularly the kind of business side of it, aspects of it um, were actually quite beneficial, but only when I was able to look at it through a different lens. I yeah. think at the time yeah. I was pursuing something that probably wasn't as genuine as kind of what I, want, I try to pursue now. Interesting. Um, I always find it so much easier when you're not in it day to day to actually yeah, yeah. look back and understand why. Um, I've had a few a few jobs in the past um I finished uni and I went and I did unpaid internships Mm -hmm. because that's just what you did back then and um I remember looking back and thinking you know I'll just do this for a month and then it'll be cool then I'll get on to the next bit and then they'll start on salary and it just never happened and Mm. until I actually stepped away and realized what they're totally taking the piss here why am I working for free um all hours of the day and night just to get a line on my CV. And mm. sometimes, now that I look back on it, Christ, my kids will not be doing that. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> yeah. um, but at the same time, you don't know any different until you just try it. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I get it. And there's an um, interesting bit in that around like how many people actually, you know, university as a concept, people go to out of school. Yeah. You know, in, in yeah. I wasn't ready at, you know, 18 to decide what my life career was going to be. 
how many people are in whatever job they went to university for. Yeah. I think it's, it's you know what, it would be interesting to do yeah. a little, I wonder if the unis, they probably do do some sort of like alumni I don't know, survey or something. Mm. I mean, I'll be honest, I've probably had them in my email inbox and ignored them. Um, so I don't know what the uptake rate would be, but it would be interesting to know actually how many people have used that subject mm. to forge a career that they're still in 10 years later. And probably the results of it might show us that to those that are 17, 18, 19 yeah. right now worrying about it, guys, don't worry, it doesn't mm. matter. Just do it for the yeah. life experience. And if you end up working in it, great. But you know, yeah, yeah. take the pressure off. So after you finished off yeah, yeah. your nine months and you kind of thought, oh, what am I doing? That must have been a difficult couple of years, figuring out what was yeah. next. How, talk me through that. How that um, went. Well, I kind of was was really lost, I would say. So I initially decided, well, I have to, you know, kind of in that mindset of I'm, you know, relatively young. I need, I need university to do it. So I went to a university with no goal and kind of was there for another year and a half. Really ended up nowhere, so ended up leaving that again. Moved back home for six, nine months. Um, and it started to kind of, I started to unpack what I needed to learn to help me figure out where I was at. Um, and that's where kind of what led me to coming to Edinburgh when I ended up coming to Edinburgh, because I came to Edinburgh to do um, kind of another degree, but I wanted to, I kind of pursued ethics was mm. the degree. So kind of a really philosophical, probably not a career, <laughs> uh, but a, a kind of more, I needed help to unpack the, where I was at and, and where I um, was being. So I came to, you know, Edinburgh, you need to do, it was my third time at university, um, uh, to do that. And kind of through that process, almost, you know, dealing with essentially philosophy more than anything, kind of helped me unpack and rebuild that kind of perspective that I had and kind of where I ended up at that place where um, the learning how to ask the right questions to understand what's important and, and what to, to value and go for, but then also combining with the business side that I had got from, you know, that, that kind of false start mm. um, kind of started to give me that worldview around how to pursue kind of trying to join those things together. Mm. That's interesting. You said something there. You learned how to unpack what was kind of going on mm. in your head. Um, if somebody who's listening is kind of in a similar situation and they kind of know, you know, I, I know I'm not doing quite what mm. I should be doing right now, but I don't know how to get to that point. What what would you say to them? What are some of the things that you maybe learned whilst you were studying um, that helped you kind of unlock yeah. what was going on in your head? I'd probably say the biggest one is being okay with not having the answer. Nice. Because um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we struggle to act because we think we have to know the solution or we have to know where it's going to be. Um, and I would say even, uh, and this is probably leading to some one, one or two of the philosophers who I kind of studied, but um, that being okay with doing stuff and acting and working towards something without really knowing where you're going. Um, it's there because we really don't know. And in fact, I, in my my view is that if we actually think we have the answer, we're probably wrong as mm -hmm. soon as we start doing it or it's the answer's changed by the time we get to it. Um, I'd say that's probably the biggest thing. It's okay to not know. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Once you realized what you were yeah. wanting to do next, where you were wanting to go, and well, in fact, what was that? Once you kind of got to the end of the, the next time at uni, what was the next step? What was the realization? You know, you'd spent some time, obviously you're in a different country now, you're yeah. here. Yeah. What was what was going on in your life at that point? Um, so I, I'm not sure there was an actual like point of realization, um, but I started spending a lot more time. It's also about the same time that I met my wife and got married as well, um, which was a really important bit mm -hmm. kind of going on in the background um, at that time. But uh, I kind of was starting to feel my way into what that was. So I spent a lot of time working in and around the community education. So um, the people know them, the Adult Learning Project was a place where I spent a lot of time, worked there for a while, um, did some stuff with other parts of Edinburgh Uni in that space mm -hmm. where people were kind of applying some of these principles into practice. Um, and then kind of fell into um, kind of a, I would, what I'd say is probably the first job I had in this new, new space, which was in, in and around what became the Grass Market Community Project. Some people might know that um, social enterprise in mm -hmm. Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, there was this question of, you know, there's this soup kitchen, there's these three other um, businesses and social enterprises who all were trying to figure out how do we create something new that uses business as a force for good to bring people who are far from work into space. And I kind of 
um, to some extent that that the pursuit of kind of trying to bring those things together and I kind of I, I was offered a role to help um, kind of define what that was going to be so to work with the team and kind of build that so it's kind of pre it being a thing but a little bit of it being a thing um, to kind of work through a lot of those questions to to kind of build a business build a, a social business um, to um, bring together people's things but it was also me working out to some extent what that meant to me yeah and what sort of year was this this was this 2007 8 okay okay so we know the grass market now i know it yeah, as yeah. you know for for those of us that maybe don't know for whatever ridiculous reason you don't know that in edinburgh um great street with loads of different small businesses on it mm -hmm. a little bit of hospitality a little bit of tourism a little bit of um can't think what else Closed shops. I'm sure there are one or two charity shops in there as well. What was it at the time when you guys were given that project yeah, and yeah. you were kind of brought in to visualize this new way of of the street or the area being? What was it defined as at, at that moment? Well, I think the so the particular space that was kind of the birthplace for this um, was uh, was basically a soup kitchen, mm -hmm. kind of at the at the eastern end of the grass market on the roundabout. So you go there now and you see this nice kind yeah. of big you know, sandstone building that's been a fantastic architecture design building that's there. Um, but it was just kind of, it was this, uh, yeah, soup kitchen for lack of better words. And I think there was an interesting bit. There was a minister at Greyfriars, which is just above it in the graveyard, who had this vision for what it could be and kind of was trying to coalesce these, these different pieces um, to come together. And um, I think for a lot of people, it was hard to see through the kind of what you saw. This is kind of building that's falling down that has um, uh, bits there. But I think moving, kind of being able to see through that to what it potentially could be. And if you see it now, mm. you know, and the kind of the succession of people who've run it since to be able to kind of harness that and kind of take it through and make it quite a successful bit. That's mm -hmm. not just kind of that product itself, but, a, you know, a piece for the whole community um, and it's sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. And when you stepped away from that, what, state was it in at that point? So I left it about the time that the building was built. Okay. So I kind of was um, in the, through the development phase of it and bringing the pieces together and kind of making it the entity that was. Um, and then um, Emma and Johnny, the kind of successive chief execs of it, kind of turned it in, uh, ran it as, as the thing. So it was very much kind of my first kind of falling into what I would now call change management. So mm -hmm. kind of learning how to kind of help things through. Mm -hmm. um, through that transition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then what happened after that? What was the next thing? Obviously something yeah. must have been uh, snapping at your heels for you to leave leave that project or move on from yeah. that project. So I think there's kind of a, there's a, a few things happened around me leaving. I think it was the right time. Um, it was one kind of recognizing that is a, is a process, but I think helping, helping things through transition became a very big interest to me. Um, so I kind of spent the next five, I'm trying to remember what years it is, five or six <laughs> years, um, four or four years really helping things through transitional stages. So I've kind of went five or six different um, businesses, social businesses um, through through that change. So whether they were ones who needed kind of restructuring or were about to go bust and needed to kind of rethink how they should do it. But I think I really got a lot of out of seeing things through the change. Um, but what was quite interesting is uh, kind of these kind of phases of where you're at in your life. Um, kind of what what pulled me out of that was realizing that none of these were a thing of my own. Mm. You know, the same even in grass market to some extent. You know, I was working it out, but you know, I was doing it for the vision of the community, and it wasn't. I kind of didn't um, come into that vision. I think uh, towards around well, about the time we get to that next bookmark mm -hmm. in the story, 2016, kind of started to get that feeling of kind of I you know. I want to own something a bit more. Mm -hmm. I want to kind of, rather than just kind of going in knowing that, you know, eight, 10 months, 12 months, 18 months later, I would kind of naturally be walking away from it. Yeah. So before we get to the next big yeah. mark, because that is a big, a big deal. Um, in that sort of intermediary stage, I suppose mm. we could call it, what sort of level in terms of career were you mm. at at that point? You know, you'd obviously done quite a bit of studying. Yeah. Um, you're in a super senior position right yeah, now. Yeah. What was that middle ground like in terms of career progression for you? I think it was, so there were still senior roles because often I would, because I was, I was on my own, would go in as a kind of 
chief exec or managing mm-hmm. director of stuff to see it through those periods. But they were, um, whether I realized it or not, they were always kind of temporary things to see it from one to another. But I would come in at an executive level when something had to happen. So, and the, org- and the size of organization was everything from doing it for um, small family business through mm-hmm. to doing it to um, something that was community owned or um, a kind of larger size one. But it was kind of always in that kind of senior level, but with, I would say, with mostly smaller organizations than I'm in now. Mm. I mean, not everything's smaller than what I'm at now, but. Um, yeah. Interesting. What's your definition or what would your definition be of somebody in that super senior chief mm. executive role, perhaps? I, I noticed you mentioned it a few times there and mm. there's almost what I'm trying, trying to get at is you jumped from finishing uni to doing yeah, yeah. a bunch of different things and doing this t- sort of transitional period still at that very senior role, the majority of people will kind of work their way up. Yeah. Um, but it almost sounds like you kind of had a I great opportunity it, yeah. and you jumped right into it. Um, yeah. How would you define that sort of senior role? We all see it as leading an organization mm-hmm. in the simplest of ways, but I'm interested in your take on it because you've done it in a few different guises, yeah, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, and I would even say like, even back when I was in in those kind of nine months in, in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. kind of being in senior roles well before I was ready to be in the senior roles. Um, and it is a weird trend within my kind of career to kind of be put into that role, whether or not I was qualified for it in retrospect or not. Um, I think, it, it depends on size of organization, um, but I think that some of the learnings I've had in my, in my current role is the kind of difference between doing it in things like grass market machine, change management through to where I'm at now, mm-hmm. completely different roles, mm-hmm. um, despite the job title might maybe being the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the biggest part is is being able to see the future. Um, so you know, I was talking about not being okay with not knowing the future, <laughs> but at the same time being able to vision that and like, have a you know, being okay with not knowing where it is, but kind of having an idea of where where it's all going um, so that you can kind of navigate. Um, so if it's kind of being that, I kind of shy away from the word leader, but everybody else uses the word leader, but kind of that, that person who brings the people together to move mm-hmm. in a direction together and kind of have that purpose and vision of, of where things are going. I think that's probably the core bit. I mean, there are other bits you have to do from governance to business management sure. and stuff but yeah. um you know those skills you can get from um from learning in school but i think the being able to kind of bring people together together is probably the hardest bit for someone in that role like that where do you think that comes from for you because you're obviously very good at it you've done yeah. it multiple times what what's what's the reason for you being so good at being able to bring these people together and kind of pull them all towards one one goal that's a very good question um, it's not something I think about. Um, yeah, it's kind so, of like a pushing, yeah, yeah. A, a pushing it a little bit because I'm just curious. You know, as, as I say, the mm. the the traditional way of working your way up in your career yeah. is to do step up the ladder, right? Yeah. Um, but there's obviously something inherent in you as a person that makes you very good at this, and mm. I am curious to try and find out what, what it is. where it comes from. And yeah. yeah, if if I was to try to rationalize it, I think it would it kind of comes back to kind of how I would say I rebuilt my my perspective of the world of um, kind of trying to be to be clear in a direction. So I think if kind of don't want to go down the, the philosopher rabbit hole too much, but, um, you know, there's a philosopher who I often personally kind of co- often go back to their works. Hegel um, is their name. And um, they came up with this thing called the dialectic, which doesn't matter. Marx used it and then other people used it later in history. But the whole point of that is to be moving in a direction. So you're constantly moving. You're constantly moving forward and you're trying out what you think the best thing is. So like Hegel would say that there is truth. We don't know what it is. We probably will never get to it. But we're always moving towards what that is um, and constantly re-asking the question of, is this the right way? We find out it's not. So then we pivot a little bit and we keep moving forward. Um, but I think that thing of not being kind of not being satisfied with no and like no is just this version of no. And then we kind of figure out what the next one is um, means that I'm always, um, even when there's a problem, trying to move in a direction. Um, and that kind of end point just kind of moves as mm-hmm. I'm as I'm going. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of comes back to that point I was saying before about being OK with not having the answer. Like that doesn't mean there's not an answer and not working towards something but it's recognized that that's probably not the actual answer when I get to it. Mm-hmm. 
We've not quite hit not the nail, quite hit it, yeah. but we might get it before yeah. the end of the okay. end of the chat. Um, <laughs> so your second bookmark moment, yeah. something very, very life changing happened. Mm-hmm. Talk us, talk us through that as much as you're happy to share. Yeah. So. Um, 2016, um, it's in the middle of the Edinburgh Festival. Um, I went out for a bicycle ride. Um, and then a week later, I ended up was in my house <laughs> and I didn't know what happened between the, the two. Um, um, or I don't remember, I should say, between the two. So what um, what happened was on Princess Street at some point on Saturday, I came off my bicycle. Um, I ride a motorbike now, which is probably more dangerous than a bicycle, but came off my bicycle at quite high speed um, and ended up at the hospital, hit my head really hard, got like scars, and you can see them on my face and kind of rebuilt my arm and scars down my hand. Um, so quite so quite an intense accident. Um, ended up in hospital for just under a week um, and then had about a six month recovery. Um, started doing a little bit of work towards the end of that, but I think there was a kind of a period of time where we were unsure because of how how bad my head injury was. Um, but as I mean, it's it's amazing how plastic your brain is and kind of come back quite quite quickly. Um, and the kind of recovery of that, kind of me reevaluating life um, and kind of where things are headed and what to do was really kind of one of these defining moments, I guess, of kind of the, the kind of period from then to now and probably kind of my, um, my, I'm not sure ambition is the right word, but kind of my desire to see change um, at pace, like like I'm kind of impatient with change not happening. Um, I think that that's really come from, from that period of being kind of uncertain, kind of had this opportunity now. I mean, there was a period of time where we didn't know if I would ever be back at work and stuff. That was quite early on in that process. But you know, kind of going through that process really um, kind of pushed me into a new place with it. How, how long were you in recovery for? Um, well, it was kind of phases of recovery. Okay. Um, so I don't, I really don't remember about a week and a half at all. Um, I have no memory of it other than stories and kind of um, photos I took of myself before my wife took my phone away from me. Um, so you can look at my like, social media and probably find photos of it um, uh, if they weren't deleted. But um, I think I was in, not, I was kind of in the bed for about six weeks um, completely. I kind of had quite a lot of uh, like physical injuries um, that were just, I couldn't move very well. Um, and then started getting, started kind of getting back to doing things after that. Um, but I remember times like my first time out on my own, like my wife and I went into town. Um, she left me on my own for a little bit and kind of, and I was went to get the bus back, but like I had a panic attack first time out by myself. Um, and a really strange thing where a former neighbor who was a bus driver, it's a weird, weird story, um, just happened to see me having a panic attack and pulled the loading bus over to say, how you doing? It was like a weird thing that broke me out of it. Um, it's a really weird, that's a really that's weird like bit of story. Weird that just, I just remembered what we were talking about it. Yeah. Um, um, but then, yeah, it's probably three months before I was kind of capable of kind of doing stuff again. I had a lot of kind of friends and family, friends support around um, my wife and son um, through that. But it took, I would say it took a good six months before I was like properly able to be normal again. That's, um, and then like other than like physical injuries, I've got no, wow. no repercussions from it other than kind of I have some, you know, body parts that don't work as well as I used to. But yeah. um kind of really moving forward. So that was kind of me then looking out as like, well, I need to move faster. We have a lot to do. There's a lot of stuff wrong in the world. We need to move forward. Um, and how do we do that? So it's mm-hmm. kind of another kind of career defining, kind of changing um, where I'm going with career and life, I guess. We all know all the stuff that's wrong in the world, right? Mm. But what are the top things on your agenda? What are the, in in that moment when you decided, you know what, I need to make a change and I need to help make this mm. change. What were the kind of, what was the catalyst or what were the key things that were top of your mind at that point? I don't know if they were, if at, at that point, I, mean, I probably have an answer for that now, but I think at that point there, were, there weren't key specific things. Mm-hmm. It was that, there's, there's a lot of things. Okay. Um, we have a lot of things. I'm not, I think 
I I still do, even though I do have personal priorities. But I think there are it's hard to prioritize the things wrong, whether it's climate change or whether it's you know child poverty or homelessness or um, you know the cancer or COVID. Now, you know th- it's really hard to prioritize, and I I really struggle to say, well, this is the only one yeah. that we should do. Um, but I think I got really impatient with a lot of the ways we do it, and the processes and the paces are kind of. They're they're slow. They're bureaucratic. We're, we often rely on other people to t- to make it okay for us to mm-hmm. to try to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's I'm kind of um, I think that's probably not sufficient. Like we need to be okay and ambitious enough that we could solve it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was the feeling you had at that time. Yeah. What what next steps did you take? You'd obviously been through a super traumatic period. Yeah. You know, you'd had this kind of awareness raising realization piece, whatever you want to call it. What did you do after that? So the big transition was moving into a more kind of longer term role. So at that time, um, I um, I moved into being the chief exec of, of was at the time first port. Mm-hmm. Um, it's now quite a, it's three different things within that. And that um, first port was, if you're not familiar with it, an organiz- or is an organization focused on early stage social businesses, whether that's social enterprises, purpose led companies, um, or not outside that. Um, and it was like, if that's so kind of my theory of change at the time was, you know, if you can get in the place where people are ambitious, are mm-hmm. trying to do stuff and you can help them figure out how to do that, then that could be a catalyst for speeding things up. You know, kind of it got to the point where so I was, I was at Firstport for five years, um, really trying to build out its infrastructure and to some extent Scotland's wider infrastructure for helping those organizations increase their impact, be more sustainable and scale that impact. Um, and that came, you know, we founded two other companies, First Impact, focused on kind of the, the private sector into that, and then an investment company, Impact Investment Partnership, where we kind of raised 15 million to kind of start deploying to, to, to get them up. Um, and that was really a question about how do we scale the impact quickly? Mm. Um, because we're often doing it on a small scale in Scotland. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This might be a loaded question. Yeah, it's fine. How, how do you scale that impact quickly? I mean, I guess every small business or social mm-hmm. enterprise that you work with is different. They all yeah. have different goals and ambitions. So for anyone that's listening who has a social enterprise or they are a social entrepreneur, what is the one thing they can do to kind of increase that impact or make a change quickly? Um, there's obviously places they can go for advice, but... If they're sitting listening to this and they think I've got a great idea and I really want to do something, but I just don't know where to go, what what would you recommend? So I think there's there's two bits. I'll get the easy one out of the way first, um, which is kind of surround yourself with a supportive community. I think that's uh, big. And in Scotland, where we have a lot of uh, of people, a lot of social entrepreneurs trying to do stuff. Um, that being said, a lot of it does happen at a kind of local, small scale level, which is depending on what you're trying to do is could be the relevant, the right size for what you're trying to do. I mean, we've talked about ones near your home that are um, at a very appropriate scale for that community. But I think a lot, you know, the the, the time I've spent with social entrepreneurs through through that role, um, that kind of first support group, um, and we were working with by the time I left around a thousand social entrepreneurs a year. Um, the biggest thing that they struggled with is feeling like someone needed to tell them it was okay to go and do that. Like they feel like they needed permission from somebody. Um, and most people don't need permission to, to kind of pursue a question or a business idea of what they're doing. Um, so if you're listening and you need permission, here's your permission, go and do it. Um, but I think it's, it, you know, that fear that we're waiting for someone else to tell us it's okay to solve a problem. Um, is what I found holds most people back. Mm. Um, and being able to work through that is a big step for people to kind of Yeah, that's move. good. That's really good. Um, and also just for the avoidance of doubt, how are we defining a social entrepreneur versus a classic entrepreneur these days? For anyone that yeah. maybe doesn't know the difference. So I can tell you what my, how I yeah. view it. Um, it's kind of the purpose of why you're doing something. Um, so if you if you're setting out to solve kind of one of these wicked problems in society and you're using business to do it, in my mind that's a social entrepreneur. There are a lot of structures and methodologies for doing that and you know, people will have these boxes and there's legal boxes you can be in depending on where you're doing it. But if you're using business to solve a problem and that's the fundamental reason for doing it, so you, you have a purpose in how you're solving that problem through business, then in my mind, you're a social entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And how does the, or does the support differ 
for somebody who classes themselves as a social entrepreneur? Is it is it any different in terms of securing funding or securing investment? Is there a different way to do things that are more purpose-led in terms of pitch decks and the message and all the rest of it? Is there any differentiation between that in your experience? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll answer two, two, different, two different types of answers. Okay. So from a... Um, a legal structure perspective, there are different methodologies depending on what legal structure you have. Mm-hmm. Um, some good, some bad um, to be there. So if you're a traditional social enterprise, which you know doesn't have things like equity and stuff, there are things you can get. But at the same time, if you're um, operating on a different scale in a different space, there are other methodologies to do it there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in my experience, and particularly spending a lot of time with the B Corp community, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the data shows that purpose-led companies and purpose-led entrepreneurs actually have more sustainable businesses um, and more successful businesses in the long run. They may not be this kind of three-year grow and sell business that you see um, as the pursuit of a lot of um, enterprise, but over the longevity of a business and the long sustainability of a business, the, that kind of purpose-led company is o- almost always more sustainable. Nice, nice. So there, there's your answer. Go for that over at the other. Yeah. Um, after Firstport, yep. how long were you there? Five years. Five years. So five years at Firstport, did you get itchy feet? Did somebody come? What happened yeah, to, to make of, you move? It's kind of that? a mix. I wouldn't say I was looking to move on um, at all, but I think what, what happened was was quite unique I would say, for, for me. Um, so I know I had been spending, you know, the last eight years saying you could scale a purpose-led company. Mm-hmm. Um, you could, you know, particularly those with impact, uh, with kind of alternative legal structures and stuff like that. You can't, that you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, when we get to the kind of what's, you, you asked me before, what was the kind of impact or, or kind of wicked problem you're trying to solve? Um, and kind of the more for me that became the climate change and particularly the social issues of effect, uh, affected by kind of climate change. Um, this opportunity came up um, for, um, so I was invited to in, uh, join the recruitment process, um, which was quite laborious uh, for ChangeWorks. So um, those who don't know ChangeWorks, Change actually, you know, we, if you're in Edinburgh, Glasgow, you might have seen the recycling vans around. Chainworks doesn't actually own that company anymore. So the vans are different branded, but um, Chainworks is kind of a climate-oriented social enterprise that operates at scale. So it's probably one of Scotland's largest social businesses mm-hmm. um, there. But the opportunity came where they were looking for a new chief exec as the last one was retiring, um, but with the ambition of scaling that impact almost at the pace of a of a high growth business. So not okay. just a kind of, you know, growing social enterprise, but like, can you go from 190 to 400 staff in three years? Kind of that, that level of ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, that's what kind of, if I'm going to put my career where my mouth has been for the last few years, that's the opportunity. And it's all, not just that kind of ambition, but also the impact and what it's trying to do mm-hmm. was the kind of lead thing that I had been spending a lot more of my time trying to tackle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a number there. We love statistics, right? It kind of yeah, just yeah. brings everything to the front. What other metrics were they after at that time when they were looking for mm. uh, their next CEO? They obviously yeah. had some goals and ambitions they wanted to reach. What else was on the table at that point in terms of this sort of high high scale High growth, quick growth, quick scale, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. What other metrics were they um, looking for? Well, I would say it was very, for, for change at the time, they had this strategy slightly before I was recruited. It was very much about um, ambition, like recognizing the necessity to solve the climate crisis mm-hmm. and impatience at how fast people were solving it. Um, and recognizing like we're in a place where if someone's going to stand up, we're willing to do it. Um, and we kind of have these inter- these kind of immediate goals of how we can get ourselves set on that pace, but almost the ambition of we're going to scale until we've solved that problem. Wow. Okay. Um, but not really knowing what that meant is probably sure. the kind of best way. And that's kind of where the kind of change in leadership piece came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and change was doing a lot of good stuff at the time. Like it was, you know, it, in the sector is still one of the largest organizations making them, well, at the time, large organizations making that, that impact in that space. Mm-hmm. But recognizing that's not enough. Um, I mean, if you put it on the scale of um, of number of houses, for instance, so Changers refined its strategy to focus on um, 
the decarbonization of, of homes and supporting the people that are in them. So very much kind of preventing fuel poverty at the same time as decarbonizing. Um, Scotland has 2045 net zero targets. Yes. Um, and the kind of interim goal of uh, decarbonizing a million homes by 2030. So to do that, we need to be doing 100,000 years, 100,000 homes a year. Yeah. That's yeah. the kind of pace we're operating at. The pace that we were doing two years ago mm-hmm. as a country, mm-hmm. 5,000 a year. Ooh. So are we are we at that 100,000 a no. year or that's where we need to get to to that, be able to hit that 2045? We, well, it's gone up now because we haven't been doing it. Of so it's course. Like, you know, it's 100,000 and 40, 140,000 like that now. Do you know what we are doing at the moment? If it was five? We're closer to six now. Oh my God, but it's still not anywhere yeah, yeah. near what it needs to be. Yeah, but I think that's that's the point. It's like <sighs> we've got these, and it's not just in you know the, the built environment space yeah. across a lot of our climate targets where we're having these bits, but it's that kind of pace bit. We you know we have legally binding goals. Yeah. We have an accelerating climate emergency and how do we achieve it? So kind yeah. of coming back to that... Um, the kind of ambition change we had at the beginning is we know that this is going to grow. We know that we have to solve it fast and we'll do what we can mm. and take risks that we need to take in order to, to do as much as we can to help solve mm. that. And I'm just thinking there, but so my reaction there was, good God, it's only gone up by a thousand. And, you know, that, that was my immediate, oh, it's not really done that much. But in actual fact, it's a totally different way of looking at measurements and mm. looking at growth because it's th- this, the actual difference that you're trying to yeah, make. Yeah. Um, how how can we decarbonize our homes? How, what do we can we as general Joes do anything? Um, what's that whole process from somebody that's totally ignorant? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to do. So in, interestingly, um, it was actually just before I uh, switched to ChangeWorks, I started on my own journey mm. um, to do that. So my um, my wife and I during lockdown, we bought a kind of semi derelict house outside Bathgate um, to with the goal of doing that. Nice. Um, which is quite an interesting experience because uh, there's things you assume when you buy a house and everything's different when you get into it. Um, but, you know, there's... So some of it is stuff that we can do. Um, some of the stuff we can control, um, whether that's kind of simple things like better insulation, draft proofing, um, probably changing our heating system. Most of us need to change our heating system if it's gas. Um, and if you're capable of renewables on your building uh, if, you, if you're able to do that. A lot of people can't do that. Sure. A lot of people can't also change their heating system currently. Um, but it also is kind of takes a, a kind of a city-based, community-based, nas- country-based approach. Because there are things that we can do at all those levels that we need um, to have, uh, we need to encourage other people to help us do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, like if you take them on a very hyper-local, my house perspective, like about as hyper-local as you can get, um, you know, n- new windows to the property, new insulation, um, a brand new heating system, new hot water system, micro renewables on the house, but also choosing a house that's probably resilient to the effects of climate change as well. So kind of building those all into that. But um, but that's kind of me kind of personally working stuff out. There's probably a theme through a lot of these stories of like, you know, there's these issues and I'm trying to solve them, but I'm working them out in my life as much as I am working them out in business because mm-hmm. that's kind of how I learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Not cheap though. All those things you just listed there, that is, yeah. that's pretty much another mortgage, you know, like, let's be honest. Yeah. This is not, these are not things that, you know, mm. the, the regular Joes in us can yeah, yeah. can do. So, so how do you guys tackle that then? How do you, how do you begin to try and increase that number when these are all really expensive modifications? Um, yeah, so there's a few, a few ways. Um, one good thing about the government, I complain a lot about the pace of government and its, um, uh, its policy certainty, particularly now, it's kind of UK government in particular. Um, but one good benefit of what, what the government's approach to this has been is supporting those most in need. Um, so those, for example, there's a really amazing scheme that one of our subsidiaries, Warmworks, runs called Warmer Home Scotland. Um, and that specifically focuses on householders who uh, are on benefits or over 75 and they have a broken heating system. Mm-hmm. So how can we decarbonize those homes? The Scottish mm-hmm. government will pay for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. In those situations. Um, so we know we could be doing 500 homes a month to, to, to do that at that scale. So for some people, there's those um, avenues to do it. Uh, government also tries to subsidize where you want to do some of those measures and you're able to pay. So you're able to take out a loan or whatever. They'll help you do that at a, at a cheap rate. Um, but outside those kind of spaces, it's hard. Yeah. Um, I think we're, we need billions a year to be spending to be doing this. 
and um, a lot of people look to government to solve that problem. The government's really not going to have the billions themselves to do that, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, governments, you know, with inflation, the cost of the government's borrowing, it's unlikely. So I kind of, I'm in a place where I'm trying to encourage the government, but I'm not expecting them to solve that. Sure. Um, I do think they have a role, the role to play in that. Um, but I don't think we have a clear solution, particularly in the UK. There are other things. I mean, I had a, heard a talk last week from um, Ireland, some Ireland's mm-hmm. um, civil servants, and amazed with what they're doing. But that's because they've been able to introduce a carbon tax and divert that carbon tax into uh, decarbonizing homes. We don't have that benefit in this country yeah. currently, at least. Um, but I think it's a huge. It is a huge challenge. Um, but there's this kind of. Uh, like perfectionism versus pace argument that has to happen. A lot of people think we need to do everything all the way Mm, versus we need to do things as good as we can to pull people out of poverty and decrease our carbon consumption to a point where we're kind of getting through. Um, But I don't think we have, we don't have the answer yet. It seems like a huge mountain to climb, doesn't it? Like it does seem quite daunting, Um, but the fact that there are things in place to help those that maybe are already at a disadvantage, mm-hmm. that's a great place to start. You've been speaking about what you're doing in your own or what you did in your own house mm-hmm. and um, how you're trying to make that as, what's the word I'm looking for, Josiah? Sustainable. Sustainable, yeah. you know, climate friendly, whatever you want to call it, as possible. I feel like you're also doing something else when it comes to looking after the planet, when it also comes to your transport and the way that you got here today. Talk to us about that little yeah. hobby, shall yeah, we call it's, it? it's a hobby. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, I don't know where this started, but you know, we talked about oh, my, my bicycle accident and the kind of bit there and my dislike of cars. Mm. Um, although people would call me, well, there's an electric version of a petrol head, I don't know what it's called, but <laughs> some people do refer to me as that. Um, but this idea of kind of micro-mobility and how to get around, um, I dislike traffic. I dislike, you know, the trains aren't as great as they could be. Um, so the past few years, I've really gotten into electric motorbikes. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're not actually, there's not actually that many around, uh, like proper big motorbikes. Um, but I find it as both a great way of transport to break down the traffic, break down the commuting, but also it's kind of a mental health exercise as well. Ooh, um, sometimes it allows me, you know, commuting on a motorbike, particularly an electric one that's quiet, gives me that space to clear my head before and after kind of what's often quite an intense day. Um, and it's kind of my main mode of transport now. Right. Mm. That's interesting on the mental health piece. And, you know, we have asked some other guests as well what they do mm. to switch off. Can they switch off? Um, and I love that that's your kind of solution to before a busy day and after a busy day. Um, do you do anything else to keep the keep the head in check, as they say? Um, walks is quite interesting. My my coach always tells me that like going on a motorbike doesn't slow you down. I need to slow down. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it, um, I think making times for walks, mm. um, just simply taking a time out to break. I mean, I'd say anybody who's in a leadership role, regardless of where in an organization, needs to dedicate a certain amount of time to not doing things. Yeah. Um, to have that space to digest because you can't constantly move Um, but for me it's walks I think to sort of end up or end off our chat your role currently CEO at Changeworks obviously you've got a lot on your agenda what have you learned you've only been there 2022 so a year and a bit bit, Um, what have you learned in that time about leading a business of that size is this well, what sort of size was First Port when you were there? Is this so it, it depends on how you look at it. So First sure. Port, staff-wise, we're in the kind of 30s. Okay. Um, because sometimes the programs went out into the hundreds, depending on what the programs were um, of other of other companies. Uh, Changeworks, um, parent company, yep. 245 yep. today. Okay. Um, we have a subsidiary that's 140, and then once another five. So we're talking, you know, depending on how you count, up to 400-something. Almost 10 times more people. Like maybe <laughs> yeah, just yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, just um, a few more. How does that compare? Leading um, so this it's business. Yeah. So I would say I'm I'm busier, but I do less, less <laughs> less general things. Yeah. Um, and I think it's kind of it's it's down more to helping, um, to kind of curate the conversation between the different arms of what mm. we do. I mean, we have got almost three different businesses happening within one business. Um, so a lot more time on leadership, a lot more time on governance, um which I can get a bit geeky about, which I'm fine with. <laughs> um, but very much that kind of, that that 
carrying the vision of the organization and trying to keep people moving in. Like that's one of the core tasks of mm. a kind of at that scale. Any tips? Um, <laughs> just be confident and kind of, you know, trust yourself, really build, um, build a community around you that you trust. So like your team, you can't do everything. You have to be okay with not doing everything. In fact, you know, the, the closer you can get decision-making to delivery is always has the best impact. But in order to do that, you have to have people that you trust. Um, and I think that's one of the key things that isn't um, valued as much as it should be. So I'm impatient. Yeah, I, I feel like I get that. Um, but um, <laughs> recognizing that that's good in some aspects, but also a fault in other aspects, mm -hmm. surra surrounding yourself with someone that's the, you know, that gets that, but is really process driven, mm -hmm. um, almost to where that's a fault, together creates something quite good. And I think that's just kind yeah. of an example of how it's, it's a mix of people you have to rely on. Love that. Um, we've talked about loads of different mm. parts of what you've been up to throughout your career, your life. Is there anything you would do differently if you were going to do it again? Obviously, maybe, well, I was going to say, obviously, maybe not fall off your bike on Princess yeah. Street, but who knows? Like, that's, yeah. that's, you know, that's probably um, had a huge impact on yeah. what you're doing now. Anything that you would do, do differently if you were to do it again? I don't think so. I mean, I've, 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 I've asked this question a few times, but I've had such a weird journey to where I'm at now mm. that I think if you pulled one of those things out, I'm not sure I'd be where I am. Yeah. Um, whether they were good or bad decisions or things that happened. Um, and even the stuff I didn't like that I had to go through, I didn't like that I did, I can see how that has shaped me where I am. So mm -hmm. I would err on not making decisions, not, not trying to do something different. Mm -hmm. So it worked out just as you planned, well, but maybe yeah. you didn't know at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's probably, yeah, it makes sense in retrospect. Josiah, thank you so much for sitting down with us. It's been really interesting getting to know you. And if anybody wants to know more about Changeworks, we'll put some information in the descriptions. Yeah. Um, and if anybody wants to know more about you, I guess you're open and yeah, you're I'm ready open. for a chat. <laughs> I'm ready to chat and like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite open. I'm doing a lot more kind of sharing on socials as well. Cool. So okay. I'm happy to. They can find you there. Yep. Great. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs>